Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're enjoying the show, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would be really helpful. Our guest today is Madeline Kulin, Vice President at Victris Capital. Victris Capital invests in technology-enabled consumer startups led by diverse leadership and is based in Boston. Some of their investments include Daily Harvest, Copper Cow Coffee, and Moxley. Prior to Victris, Madeline developed her consumer expertise as an operator, experiencing firsthand the importance of consumer-centric values while working at Apple and the Walt Disney Company. Then she moved to Oliver Wyman, where she focused on partnering with leading consumer product and services businesses on strategic growth initiatives. It was really fun chatting with Madeline about consumer, early-stage investing, and a bit about Boston. So without further ado, here's Madeline. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So what attracted you initially to startups and venture capital in the first place? So for me, it was really about impact. Um, I had spent time in in my career working for great brands. I, I had the pleasure of working for Apple and for Disney and learned so much from the leaders of those companies and, and truly fell in love with consumer being able to work in that environment. Um, I also spent some time consulting, advising for large companies, but ultimately found that it was every free spare moment of my day and in my weekends, I'd be looking at what was happening earlier stage and and really had this insatiable curiosity for learning what was happening in, in the early markets and, and looking really where the disruption lies. Um, at the same time, I would drop anything to, to speak to a friend who was starting a company or, or working somewhere earlier stage. And so for me, it was the it was really the area where it was it was what I would have loved to do, even if I wouldn't have been paid for it, um, to be to be quite frank. And so it it just made so much sense to me as I as I really thought about what I wanted to do next in my career, having been able to spend time operating and advising to to lean more into an investing role and really be involved in, in companies in those earlier stages. It's very, very exciting times in terms of, uh, you know, working with companies that are very small, that are still in those early stages. Venture is notoriously hard to break into. How did your experience working with more, mostly Fortune 100s translate into evaluating early stage companies? Definitely. Um, completely, completely understand with everyone who's going through the hustle of, of entering venture and and it's funny, I actually think coming from coming from looking at companies at a later stage has been very helpful. It's funny to think, but most companies that you that you see today that are quite well established did did start somewhere. And for this reason, I love reading biographies. Um, highly recommend Sam Walton's Made in America and Shoe Dog by by Phil Knight. But I, I think what they really show is the scrappiness in those early days, the the real hustle to get to product market fit, and, and many of the things that that we look for. And, and ultimately, it's about understanding the people who are creating these companies, the organizations, and, and the strategies within a context of time that get them there. Um, for me in particular, having, having worked with clients that, again, are either in mass or discount or retail, um, it was so helpful to really understand how they think about things like omnichannel and distribution and manufacturing, and really be able to understand and bring that down a level to to really help our founders from an earlier stage think about scale 
And whether that's through competing with these large players or whether that's through partnering, um, a lot of that has really come into play. And I would say the other thing that's really helpful is, is honestly just the technical skill set, being able to look at markets and being able to analyze them from both a qualitative and quantitative perspective. Um, I think that has been tremendously helpful. And, and quite frankly, I think in this day and age, as you, as you think about exits even, I, I spend my time looking at everything from the earliest stages of idea to, you know, large public companies. And, and for me, that context of kind of consumer as a category, despite stage, um, is, is really helpful. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I've, I've, I've heard also from other investors about how uh, going from um, the later stages, public companies, uh, the, the, you know, working and analyzing those companies, how, how tremendously helpful it's, it's been when they actually come down to the venture and growth stages. So tell me a little bit about Victress Capital, if you don't mind. So Victress Capital, we are a seed stage firm that has a pure consumer focus. We're here in Boston and we back gender diverse teams. Um, so there are a couple of nuggets there. I think, firstly, we, we do focus all on consumer. And for us, that's consumer brands, but also marketplaces and tech-enabled consumer services. So we, we have quite a, a broad range of, of what we actually look for in consumer. And that's not just B2C models. We also invest in B2B2C and, and even B2B type models that, that have a consumer angle, which is, which is really exciting and provides diversity within our portfolio. Um, and then in terms of the teams that we invest in, all of our companies have gender diverse teams. Um, we have 21 companies and 20 of them are led by women, which is something that we're really excited about. Um, we, we certainly believe and have seen the data that top line and bottom line, these diverse teams do outperform. Uh, and so that's, that's certainly something that we're really excited about and, and something that differentiates us as a fund too. Um, we're, we're fairly lean, so it's, it's a small team. We're really scrappy. Uh, and I think we, we certainly have a lot of empathy for, for our founders because I think building a firm is, is an entrepreneurial journey as well. Really great that, that you have a, lots of uh, gender diversity. That's, uh, that's great to hear, especially in venture capital. What are you looking for at the seed stage? What are some of the milestones that you want to see startups um, accomplish at, at your investing stage? Yeah, so it's it's always funny defining it by by seed A B etc. Um, but I would say it's it's certainly early, and in early days, you're you're really depending on a team and you're depending on an idea. That being said, I think the way that we look at it is we we start with the why and the problem to be solved. Having having that in mind, it's really important to think about the founding team and really how they're approaching this problem and and why why what they're going to do is is going to really break out of the pact. Um, and so we, we spend a lot of time just thinking about, honestly, the reason it needs to exist and why that market is grow it is essentially a, a high growth enough market and a large enough market for a VC investment to make sense. Um, I think the founding team is, is very much a part of that and it's inextricable to, to remove one or the other. And so I, I think the reality is that starting something and, and being in the early days of a company is really hard. And so... We're looking for very resilient founders. We're looking for founders that that show an openness to to new ideas and for pivoting quickly and and really balance that with with high conviction and and an ability to really have that self confidence too. Um, so we're we're certainly paying a lot of attention in our in our diligence and in getting to know founders and how they kind of think about building their business. Um, and then lastly, we're looking at the business model as well. 
And so we really want to understand what that company's unfair advantage is, whether it's something in the distribution, in the cost structure, in the particular angle, who they're partnering with it. It really can be many different things, but we have to understand why that company above, above anyone else in that similar space. So walk me through a little bit about your due diligence process. Yeah, so it's it's funny. I would say we have somewhat of a contrarian view, suddenly to say, in that we actually are a very data-driven firm. And and even with limited data at, at the early stages. And so what this means is, again, even if the company only has a, a few years of revenue or less than a year of revenue, we're trying to understand what that business model looks like now and, and how that will eventually scale. We will look into the actual unit economics. We'll look into growth patterns of margins, of, of where they're spending, of how they're growing. Um, and we really do like to dig into that. That being said, where we start is with some very high-level questions and, and really trying to understand what will it take for this company to be a winner and, and to really succeed within the market. And so by starting there, we really just start to hone our thesis and our kind of overarching questions before we go into the into the details of, of our diligence. Um, we'll look into everything from whatever financials they have, historical and going forward. We'll look into their competitors and do some market mapping exercises um, and, and really utilize our network. We, we tend to like to speak to prior investors as, as well as advisors and, and customers. And so there's a lot of primary research aspect there. Um, within consumer, you certainly have to also look at the product, try the product or the service and, and get some, some feedback there. Um, I, I think it's, it's quite wise to really understand actually the mechanics of, of how it works. And I will admit quite fun as well. Um, and then ultimately, it's, it's a series of conversations with the founders as we're going through these questions together in, in quite a collaborative way um, and ultimately ending up with with the partnership deciding uh, to move forward with an investment, and we have we have a lot of robust debate, which is actually something that is is quite healthy. Um, we we often disagree, but we we very much listen and and get to the best decisions together. What do you like to see in terms of how founders plan to use like the like like the capital injection to scale? Like what are what are maybe answers that you don't like or 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 and and, and answers that you think are rash or like acceptable or, or plausible uh, for scale? So answers that I don't like would be that we're taking every single dollar invested and putting it into payment acquisition. Um, I think that that in today's market is is not the is not really the the right answer. I think apart from that, there's there's such a variety of things, and it's not necessarily a right or wrong, but it's how it fits into their particular model. And so whether it's for hiring, whether it's for building out a specific product, um, it really is actually how how does what you're saying you need in order to get you to your next stage align with your use of capital? And we really like to see capital efficiency, I think, to the point of investment in, in paid acquisition. You know, how many dollars are you putting in and, and how many dollars do you get out is kind of a fundamental question. Um, and so we, we really look at we look at that quite a bit as well. Um, and frankly, I, I think we're also paying attention to 
is is VC the right funding mechanism considering what what they wish to invest in and and how they wish to grow with that that's helpful I feel like I feel like a few years ago you could have maybe gotten away with saying that we want to put all our money into paid acquisition because paid acquisition got you a lot more on the other end <laughs> exactly 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 there was there was uh, there was certainly some some arbitrage opportunities a few years ago but uh, those don't those don't really exist as much today. So tell me, tell me a little bit. You're, you're based in Boston. Tell me a little bit about Boston startup e- ecosystem. Yeah. So actually, I I love Boston, despite being Australian and having lived in Texas and California, um, and, and totally unanticipating the cold. Um, this is a community and a city which I really love, and in particular, I think the venture and startup and tech ecosystem here is really close knit and collaborative. Um, we have excellent educational institutions. And, and really a wide breadth of, of industry here. I, I will say in terms of, in terms of venture, it's, it's fairly heavily weighted towards healthcare, towards, towards staff and, and, and more of that enterprise space. Um, but that being said, I think there are some large companies here. We have the Wayfairs of the world, for example. And I think there is gonna be more and more talent that spins off from both the universities as well as those, those larger companies, which will make it an increasingly interesting environment for consumer as well. Um, so we, we love it here. We, we certainly thrive here and, and we're excited to, to be part of this community. Um, although we, we have investments across the states and so we're certainly, we're certainly not willing to, to be in the other markets too, but this is home for us. Let's talk a little bit about how you think about the value of brand. How do you think about the competitive advantage or moat that you can build with a brand? Yeah, so I, I think it's a really interesting time for that question. Um, obviously, in the public markets, we're seeing huge write-downs by Lux of the, the Kraft Heinz of the world and, and those that have had a lot of brand equity on their balance sheets stored up in brands that have, have really been a legacy for them. And we're also seeing in the M&A market that they're increasingly buying smaller brands that, that have more of a loyal following within, within perhaps smaller communities, but are trending towards things like wellness or sustainability. And frankly, you know, Unilever put out research not too long ago showing that actually a lot of the growth within their portfolio comes from these more sustainably driven brands. And so I, I think what that, what that really shows is that it's about creating community and it's about creating authenticity. Um, we, we've certainly seen kind of even in new brands, the slate of here's my Pantone color and here's my font and this is my brand. Um, but that that ultimately does not a brand make in, in at least my view, and and ultimately in this in this arena, customers customers are still somewhat fickle to a degree. They're they're price conscious. They want things that are convenient, and so I think it's it's tying all of those things together. But I think ultimately it's it's that note that's important through creating an authentic connection and community. Yeah. No. I. I. Yeah. I. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean how I think about it and I apologize, you're kind of my, my, my latest victim, um, with this thinking. And I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts. I've, I've, <laughs> no, I love it. Come at me. <laughs> you know, like just in terms of like concentrating on apparel, a lot more brands today are having these impact missions, whether it's eco-friendly supply chains, a donation to a cause, or, you know, concerned with our global footprint. There's also this trend of fast fashion. Since we're now easily able to take pictures on your phone and able to post on Instagram, you have to be wearing a different outfit in each photo. So instead of buying a few pieces of apparel uh, that might be more on the eco-friendly side, instead you're buying lots of pieces that are very, very cheap. 
Wondering how you're thinking about these two contrasting trends. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of interesting times when we see juxtapositions in the markets and and trends going in in different ways. I think part of this is that it is it is not a homogenous consumer demographic, and there are different needs to be met there. But I think the other part of it is it is becoming increasingly competitive, and and some of these things are actually just becoming table stakes. Like in in some markets, say mass, you need competitive pricing, and now you actually need to be sustainable too. And and those are the table stakes, and so. You really have to rise to that in order to be competitive. I think the other part, though, is is really thinking about the the solution there and the problem to be solved. For instance, if you're thinking about price point and you're thinking about what you mentioned in terms of of recency and and how often you need to switch clothing, I think that's where models like a rent the runway or a thread out come into play. And it's well, then how can we essentially give you an affordable price point without creating the same the same footprint of of you purchasing it at such a high frequency and there being such a high volume of clothes that they need to be discounted or need to be burned and discarded. And so I think that is where business model evolution comes into play and where you have to look at different trends that are, again, seemingly at odds and and find the way to innovate within that. That's really helpful to my thinking. So, uh, so, uh, so thank you. I thought that was great. Do you think this is the hardest period to build a true brand uh, where you're able to charge a premium given the DTC channel and that it's so easy now, easier than ever to launch a brand? Yeah, so yes and no um, is is the answer in short. I think at the beginning of kind of this DTC wave, it was actually, and again, back to the kind of the dot-com boom of the past, it was actually building the store, which was the hard part and and really trying to get to this great e-commerce transaction. And, and ultimately what happened is, there have been some great companies that have emerged as providers in this space. Now you can spin up a shop on Shopify and you can have your payments being served by Stripe and, and use, multiple in, uh, use multiple integrations there and applications. And then you can have 3PL on the back end, third-party logistics and outsource your manufacturing. And so that took away kind of the, what was your edge in, in any of those components? Because frankly, that, that flattens the playing field if, if everyone can outsource the same way which then made it become a, a little bit more about brand. And I would say, so in, in that way, yes, like a brand is, is also something that is easy to create in, in one way. You can hire an agency, you can create it in PowerPoint yourself, hire a designer, 99 designs or, or whatever it would be. But it is very hard to scale because that gets back into the, okay, yes, it's, it's easy to create, meaning that there are actually a lot of entrants and standing out is, is much harder. And so I would say, yes, it's, it's easy to create a, a brand today, but it's actually really difficult to, to build one and to get that to scale. And so for me, some of the things that I, that I look at right now, one of which is, is a big focus on distribution. And I think that involves both the marketing side as well as the actual channel side of physical distribution too. So marketing, again, what, what outside of, of Facebook and Google are you using? Is that are you going back to catalog now because you think that that is the empty channel or is it YouTube or, or Pinterest or, or whatever else might be novel and different and really aligned? Um, so I think a lot about that on the, on the marketing side in terms of what, what new is emerging. And on the physical distribution side, again, D2C does not, does not really pertain in a complete category for me. It is it is one channel of distribution amongst many, which should be considered and, and be thoughtfully constructed within a strategy in thinking about your channels. 
And so from this perspective, not just looking at e-commerce and, and not just looking at retail, but any sort of wholesale partnership or partnership with different brands um, and ways to really get your get your product out there and discovered if it is a product-led business. But the same can be the same can be said for services or, or products that kind of live in the software space too. Glad that you pointed to DTC as a channel. How do you how do you think about profitability? Is that is that a big conversation that you also have with founders? Yeah, it, it certainly is. And again, I, I think it's very context specific. That being said, we we are certainly not the move fast and break things at, at all costs type of mentality within our firm. And it's it's not what we advise, but but what we do look at is actually very specific to the type of business they're building and the category they're building in to look at actually what what those exit strategies look like. For instance, if you're a if you're a consumer beverage company, like there are very specific distribution channels there. There are probably a handful of strategics that you're looking at quite closely. And there's a world of probably private equity and and chance of of IPO and and really sitting down and understanding which of those options look attractive and and what you would need in order to look attractive to to essentially have that have that profile is something that we do pay a lot of attention to and and again that will look different for each company having a portfolio that has both kind of the again tech enabled services side versus the more consumer brand side those those exit outcomes look different the capital efficiency looks slightly different um but ultimately it's it's just really planning ahead. Like, who do you need to be in front of today? What does your growth path need to look like? And honestly, <laughs> what does the competitive set look like? And and how can you make sure that you're going to be there when they're not? Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's very well said. Some folks believe that consumer is dead, that there's that it's a bit of a contrarian time to invest in consumer. I wanted to hear how you think of the current landscape. I am all for taking the contrarian view here. Um, I, I won't believe some of the points that we made before, but but quite frankly, looking at the numbers, it, consumer, it's trillions of dollars. The, the U.S. economy is made up about 70% of, of consumer spend. And even just looking at smaller categories within that, say e-commerce, where we're at about 600 billion now. It's, it's about 14% of, of retail sales. And this number is only going to continue to grow. I think there's a lot of exciting things happening in mobile and, and really thinking about these different pathways that are enabled by technology and enabled by in-person experiences. And so quite frankly, you know, there's the conversation that consumer is dead and that retail is dead, but it, it will ultimately continue to change, right? So Yes, the companies that have done retail poorly and have failed to innovate are probably not going to be here. But you think about the the counter to that. And for example, like working at Apple, thinking about how Apple started those stores in an age where, you know, the world has thought, you know, with Dell, figured it out, don't actually need a store, can sell direct consumer, got it. And then Apple comes out with these quite large footprint, beautiful stores and, and reinvents the way that that really experience has, has been done through retail and it was a widely successful move for them. Um, and so I, I think there's, there's going to be more of a renaissance than a death. Um, and I think it's just going to have to, it's going to have to change and it's going to have to have some innovation, but ultimately consumers not going anywhere. Well, 
uh, as the host of this podcast, I completely agree. What's one thing that you would change about venture capital? Yeah, so I, I know multiple of your guests have spoken about the the need for diversity. Obviously, our fund stands for that, and so I won't I won't kind of belabor the point there, despite thinking that it's super important. Um, but but on the same kind of spectrum of diversity, I, I actually think geography is is something that's really important. Um, again, we we certainly look to markets like New York or SF or LA, but actually our portfolio is, is quite expansive across the states. Um, one of our companies is fantastic and are based in St. Louis. And there are such incredible opportunities to be had when you can take advantage of a, of a labor force that's, that's hungry for these types of opportunities. And you can have an HQ that actually has reasonable rent. Um, and also, like, frankly, the ideas around the states are, are not distributed in such a concentrated way around very few cities. And so I, I think quite honestly, it's, it's going to be access to capital um, and really the, the networking of, of kind of firms and, and startups in a, in a more geographic friendly way too. Completely agree on the, on the geography side. What are some uh, advice that you have for maybe founders that are in like secondary or, or tertiary markets? Yeah. So what I would say really lean into those ventures to these venture and startup ecosystems that are emerging. I actually, so I actually, I, I spent some time at UT Austin and we, we always used to call it Silicon Hills, which I know there's Silicon Valley, there's Silicon Beach if you're over in LA. And we always said Silicon Hills for, for Austin, but like that is a thriving community. And I think the same thing can be said, whether you're there or even somewhere like Montana, like there are going to be entrepreneurial people, people to share ideas with. Um, there are also funds now which have a specific focus on on going to these cities. And so Rise of the Rest is, is one that comes to mind. There are certainly others. But in this day and age where you can pick up a phone, you can get to email, it's it's easier than ever, I think, to to still get those warm intros and to and to connect. And and frankly, if eventually you you need to go out to one of the larger cities because you feel that you you need that for the next capital injection, then I think that's fine um, and that works. But I think there's a lot to be done just building community where you are, building a very sticky customer base there and and making those broader connections because for, for better or for worse, the, the world of venture can be quite small. Those are all great points. I know you already mentioned a couple books earlier, but I just wanted to know what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Yeah, so I'll, I'll smush them together. Um, again, I do still highly recommend, um, I do love biographies in, in the business space. So definitely recommend Shoe Dog, Made in America. Um, anything written about Amazon is always interesting. But one book that actually impacted me deeply, both professionally and personally, um, it was a book by Clay Christensen. He's he's very well known for Innovator's Dilemma, but he actually has a has another essay and and writing called How Will You Measure Your Life? And I think it was really interesting to me because we live in a world which is which is by all means very metrics driven and and has a constraint on resources. Your your time is finite, and and in the end, it's it's really important to think about actually what what how do you measure success and how will you measure your own success? Um, and so I loved kind of his application of, of business, business and, and management principles in a way that was deeply personal and, and reflective. Um, and I, I, still, I love a quote um, from the end of it. And he said, don't worry about the level of individual prominence you've achieved. 
worry about the individuals that have helped you become, that you have helped become better people. Think about the metric by which your life will be judged and make a resolution to live every day so that in the end, your life will be just as a success. And that that is really stuck with me. Um, and so I think I think about it a lot in terms of why why I met Victress and and why venture and and why we back the companies we do and and how I show up for for others in my community. Um, so I would say that that has been a, quite a common thread for me. Yeah, I mean, I gosh, I. I love that quote. That's really, really great. Thanks so much for sharing. Uh, so what's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? Yeah, so funnily enough, one of our most recent investments was also an investment that was that was quite early for us in this fund. And so we we invested in a company called Somersault. So it's the same company actually over in St. Louis. And this company started in the swimwear space, but really encompasses everything that a woman needs for her next adventure. Whether that's a, an adventure in the backyard or in Bali, it literally is a, a company that is built on inclusion and diversity and just has great product. Um, Lori and Reshma, the founders of Somersault, and I have been so impressed by the way that they have built an inclusive community and the way that they really get their customers and that they speak to her. Um, so this is, this is going to be one to watch. Um, I, I personally love their products. I love their brand. Um, and it's been super exciting seeing how well they've grown. No, that's great. No, that's, that's, that's really cool. I will, um, even though I, even though I know that I'm not the target audience, I will certainly check it out. Um, (laughs) It's very giftable. uh, Very giftable. Love it. Uh, so what is one piece of advice that you have for founders of consumer companies? So I think for me, it comes back to really knowing your why. And so what that means is as a founder, you have a unique insight, you have a unique point of view, and you have a unique reason why this is the problem you have chosen to solve and why you're the one to do it. And so what, what that means is that you have to be able to really do the storytelling of showing how big that vision is and, and what that becomes, but also bringing people into the today and to the what's next and, and how we get there. And whether that's your investors or your first employees or your first customers, it's really being able to craft that notion of storytelling in a way that brings people along with you. Um, and so I think that really does start with knowing your why, but focus on being able to communicate that too. I think that's an excellent point. And I think that it also gives us a further lesson on how you evaluate founders and teams. Madeline, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I really appreciate you sharing all of your incredible insights. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And there you have it. Thanks again for your time, Madeline, and for sharing all your insights. You can follow Madeline on Twitter at mkulin and check out her blog, mkulin.com. If you're a founder and working on something innovative, have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks.